Let's start verse 13 of chapter 1 here. So, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Um, The argument that James leads with here, the most charitable way I can frame it is this. Uh, Since God's the one that brings trials or allows trials into my life, doesn't that also mean he's ultimately responsible for the temptations in my life? So that, I think, would be the most charitable way to frame this, this, this attitude. But James unequivocally says, no, right? Um, this attitude of, isn't God responsible for this, is not something that we have to be taught. It's something that's very natural to us as human beings. Um, as a parent, and I don't know how many of you are parents in here, but even if you're not a parent, you're a child of a parent. Maybe you can relate to the fact that um, children are not really known for their love of rushing to take responsibility for something when something's gone wrong or somebody's getting in trouble. Um, one of my children, who will remain nameless to protect the guilty, has often tried to lawyer me when something's gone wrong. Uh, she, I assume, thinks that if she can make a good enough argument about why she was blindsided by these unforeseen extenuating circumstances uh, that led her to break this rule or led her to treat her sibling in a particular way, that I will have no choice but to not get her in trouble. And in fact, I should thank her for doing it. Uh, No kidding. I remember witnessing my wife having a discussion with this unnamed child. And that was the conclusion she came. You should actually be happy that I did this. You should thank me. Uh, (laughs) Which, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I'm sorry, that just makes me laugh. I'm just like, thank you, Lord, for reminding us that we are sinners by birth, right? Um, This tactic is not particularly persuasive to me, as you might imagine, mostly because I invented it during my own childhood. (laughs) And maybe... Those of you who remember your own childhoods can uh, relate to that as well. So, But it's something we all share, obviously. Without fail, children who are avoiding taking responsibility for their sins or their mistakes become adults who avoid responsibility for our sins and mistakes. The only thing that really changes is I think we get a lot better at like sort of like subtly pointing the arrow somewhere else, shifting blame somewhere else. And this reaction is not only completely natural to human beings, it has existed for as long as sin has existed in this universe. So we are going to look at Genesis 3, starting in verse 8. So, context Adam and Eve just ate the fruit. God's walking in the garden. He wants to know what's going on. Okay, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? What should Adam's answer have been in this moment? Yes. Okay. As we all know, as I'm sure this story is very familiar to all of us, that's not exactly the answer he gave. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So I think as I was studying for this, um, my favorite interpretation of Adam's argument is like given by um, a preacher was, hey, Lord, I didn't even know what a woman was. I went to sleep, I woke up, and now I'm married to her. Like, this is not, I didn't do this. So, but as you see, um, he's not just blaming Eve in this moment, right? He's not just saying the woman fed it to me. He's saying the woman that you have given to be with me. So he is pulling the blame. And then Eve blamed it on the serpent. So this is the natural response of people when they're confronted with their sin. It is to blame someone else, literally anybody else, to avoid taking responsibility. Um, Bottom line is we don't take responsibility for our actions very well. So Now, in uh, back to James, uh, verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13. James says in this verse, let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. This is not something I think that we hear a lot, like literally or even like close to this. He doesn't mean with this verse that um, God is actively trying to tempt you. As in, you know, he um, caused this woman to dress in a way that was provocative and he guided her path so that she would cross the street in front of you while you were waiting at a stoplight. Like, that's not what James is saying here. He's not saying that people are claiming that God is actively trying to tempt them. Like, here, pushing this at you so you see what you're going to do. Sometimes people might make that claim, but that's not what he's saying here. What he means is that God is not trying to indirectly tempt you from a distance, right? He's not the cause of it, but he's indirectly tempting this, tempting you this way. Um, this is usually how that is verbalized. So what does that mean? This is how we typically would say that without saying that. Uh, well, you know, this is just who I am. And if I wasn't put in this situation, I wouldn't be tempted, right? Or, maybe more famously in our modern culture, I was born this way. This is just who I am. This is just how I am. And so, we are not directly blaming God in this situation, but we are indirectly blaming God. So, consider that in light of Proverbs 19.3, which is a very clear, very consistent. It is the foolishness of a man that twists his way and his heart frets against the Lord. It is not God's fault when we sin, when we are tempted. Um, and this really like permeates our culture, I think, quite a bit. Uh-huh. 
I remember my favorite movie growing up as a kid, like under 10 years old. Oh, yeah, right around there was Aladdin, the Disney Aladdin with Robin Williams. Love it. Still love the music to this day. Like, it's a great story. Robin Williams, awesome, hilarious. Um, but in that movie, right as soon as you meet Aladdin, he starts singing a song that a comedian dubbed later, the Telling Kids It's Okay to Steal song. And it is, it's absolutely true, right? Um, it's all basically about how, yeah, I'm poor. In fact, one of the repeating lines in that song is, gotta eat to live, gotta steal to eat, right? Like basically justifying his, all of his actions. And so even in family kids movies, we're getting these messages sent to us. It's just how permeated it is in our culture. But James is obviously unequivocally rejecting this conclusion. And so he's making a case now as to why we're, it's not right of us to say that, okay? So the first thing he says, still in verse 13, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Literally in the Greek, this means God has no experience with evil. Evil is completely apart from the nature of God. God is holy, 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 Isaiah 6. Like, it's repeated over and over throughout the scripture. God is perfect. God is holy. Evil has no place. God has no vulnerability to evil. Evil is completely foreign to God's nature. One of the things that I thought about as I was doing this is how, in, how like unique that is, really. If you look at man-made religions, you look at like the Romans, the Greeks, the Norse, you know, in India, you look at their pantheons of gods, the stories about their gods, they are just the same as human beings. They're jealous, they hate, they kill each other, they lie to each other, they steal. They're just awful human beings, and it's like, these, these fabrications of men reflect men, right? A stream doesn't rise higher than its source, right? Water always flows downhill. So God stands alone in that he is perfect, he is holy. And so he has no, he has nothing to do with evil whatsoever, okay? Secondly, still in verse 13, nor does he tempt anyone. What's God's role in temptation? Nothing. He does not tempt anyone, right? Now, over the years, um, and probably until the Lord comes again, there are people who say that this is actually not correct. Um, and they will point to the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, right? Jesus is praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Or in Matthew 4.1, excuse me, for example, when it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the argument goes, doesn't the fact that Scripture says that the Spirit led Christ into the wilderness, that God is ultimately responsible for Christ being tempted? Uh, I would say absolutely not. For one, I go back 
to what I said at the beginning of this. The Greek word for tempt is the exact same word for trial. Okay, And then also, as we established earlier, the diff- one of the main differences between trials and temptations is how they are handled. A trial becomes a temptation when it's handled improperly. And since Christ did not handle these trials improperly, they did not become temptations. And that reality is reinforced in verse 14. So let's move on to verse 14 here. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. The source of our temptation is our own desires, enticing us away. This is God, or James's next point about why God cannot be responsible for temptation. The nature of man is that our temptation comes from inside of us. That's also another major difference between a trial and a temptation. A trial is something external that comes into our lives to test us, to better us, to make us uh, a better reflection of God, to make us more useful in his hands. A temptation uh, is something that originates within us and pulls us away from God. Relating it back to Matthew 4, 1 that we just looked at, since Christ had no sin nature, he didn't have that internal temptation pulling him towards sin. So there are two words that I want to pull out of this verse, 14, discuss a little more. First is drawn away. This is a term for hunting. It means to lure an animal away into a trap. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second is entice. Entice is a fishing term, which means to uh, bait a hook and catch a fish. Right, so literally... um, Obviously, hopefully you guys all know what fishing is, so that, that's pretty self-explanatory. So while that imagery of hunting and fishing might suggest an external force acting on us, this verse makes clear that the thing that's hunting us, the thing that's trying to bait and catch us, is our own desire. We have nobody to blame, ultimately, for our temptations other than ourselves. No matter what is baiting the hook, either, you know, um, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is the call's coming from inside the house, right? Like those old those old thriller movies, the call's coming from inside the house. That's really the enemy is within, right? No matter what baits the hook, we are the ones pulling ourselves toward it ultimately based on our desires. So, and again, this is reflected all over the New Testament. Let's take a quick look at Romans 7. 15 through 18. This is Paul. It's one of the many places that he discusses that sort of um, living the Christian life while still being trapped in a sinful body. So, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. 
So um, one of the things I want to point out here is that talking about passing blame here. Uh, when Paul says in verse 17, it is not no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, he's not trying to pass blame here. He's not trying to say, hey, it's not actually me. It's this darn body I'm in. What he's saying, essentially he's comparing and contrasting the life of somebody before they're saved and after, right? Before we're saved, we're dead in our sins, and we're just going along for the ride. Anything the body wants, great. This is our entire existence. When we're saved, we've been regenerated, right? We've been made alive. But while our soul is alive, our body is still the same as it was, right? And so it's that dichotomy of me, the new me, the new creation that Christ has given, still having to contend with the old sin. So so the difficult part of the flesh being enticed is that all lusts are really like just good things that God has given us that we have twisted and perverted ourselves, right? Um, Eating food, great. Food is good. It's nice to eat a good meal. Everybody loves it. It can quickly become gluttony, right? Comfort. There's nothing wrong with wanting your needs to be met physically, but we know that when that becomes an obsession, a single-minded obsession, people will do anything they can. Greed, you know, steal, lie, whatever, to get it done. You know, sex is something that was given by God as a gift, and it is good. And yet we see a million ways that in our modern age we've perverted and twisted it. Prostitution, pornography, adultery, all that. So these things are on the face of them things that God has given us we have misused them. We have twisted them for our own purposes. And so in some circles in Christianity, it's pretty popular to rebuke Satan uh, for bringing temptation onto believers. But I would say while he's obviously very interested in stealing, killing, destroying, however he can, I think the point that James is making here in these verses is that even without Satan or demons trying to tempt you, our flesh by itself is perfectly capable of enticing us to sin. Okay. Let us move on to verse 15 and 16. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived my beloved brethren. So this is kind of, um, this is like James is giving us some insight into the nature of sin. And sin is really a process that we undergo consciously, subconsciously. Okay. The first part of chapter one outlines the process of trials, specifically the positive process of trials, right? So starting in verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then I would also throw verse 12 into that, where it says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So here's the positive process of trials. You have 
trial, a trial comes into your life, your faith is then tested and you're successful in that test. You rely on God to empower you in that moment. That builds patience or perseverance into your life. And God uses that patience and perseverance to make you perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So you become more complete. And then ultimately, as it says in verse 12, he he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised those who love him. This is all, and now I'm not a theologian by any means, so obviously please take this with a grain of sand. Most translations translate verse 12, blessed is a man who endures temptation for me because of the positive nature of a trial and what God does with it in our lives. I would prefer to translate that trial instead of temptation Um, because as we're going to see here in verse 15, we're going to look at the flip side of that. Okay, the negative process of temptation. So it starts again with a legitimate desire or need. And then that becomes a temptation. Okay. And then our fleshly desire draws us away and entices us. Sin is conceived. And then ultimately, when sin gives birth, it brings forth death. Okay. So. This, by the way, is why focusing on sin is a mere action that you do when you're trying to like stop sin in your life is not usually successful because sin is a process we go through. It starts with an emotion, oh, that looks good, or man, that person really ticked me off right now. And then it goes into your brain and you start to justify to yourself a particular course of action that God doesn't approve of. Then you start to plan executing that. And then ultimately, by the time it becomes an action, it's already gone all the way through. So to try to jump in at that last minute and say, this is where I'm going to make my stand, it's not going to work. We have to trace it all the way back to the beginning, to those initial emotions. That's why we are told to daily sacrifice ourselves, right? This is how we put ourselves on the altar, knowing that we need to stop this. We need to discipline ourselves all the way back here so it never makes it this far. And that goes not just for those sins that require like planning ahead of time, um, but I'd also say that it also applies to those that we would consider to be reflexive or spur of the moment. Um, I'm... This is not like a subject to laugh about necessarily, but I'm always sort of amused by the absurdity of our culture. We have something called a crime of passion. Uh, There is a legal term called voluntary manslaughter. And what that means is you killed somebody with no malice aforethought. That's the legal term, no malice aforethought. No no, No premeditation. You did in the spur of the moment with no malice aforethought. I'm just amused that legally we assume somebody could kill another person, like murder them with no malice aforethought, right? Even if it was like a snap decision. So um, there, I don't know that anybody was hoping for a lesson in neurochemistry, but here we go. You guys ready? Buckle up. There's a phenomenon in 
uh, your brain called synaptic plasticity. It's just a fancy term. Uh, the, this is sort of how memories are formed in your brain or how uh, data is accessed quickly in your brain. So your brain, when you think of a specific piece of information, it fires an electrical impulse through your brain along a certain path. Okay? And the way that your brain works is there are neurons. They don't exactly touch each other. And so when an electrical impulse needs to travel from one neuron to the other, it secretes a chemical called a neurotransmitter. And it's basically the bridge between them. And so it fires across from neuron to neuron, and it gets to where it needs to go and back. As you try to memorize something, it is firing along that same path over and over and over again. And synaptic plasticity means that as you do that, as you do that repetition, as you keep trying to remember something over and over again and fire signals along that path, those synapses that release those neurochemicals, neurotransmitters, become better at it. So they start release, they get stronger. They start releasing more and more, which means the signal travels better. You're much more able to recall and remember that information. So that is, um, that's the idea here. Why do I care? You're asking yourself. Great question. Maybe you won't even after I explain it, but here we go. Um, the point I'm trying to make is in those moments, those what we would call like snap sins, somebody is rude to you and so you snap at them or, you know, you reply to somebody with an angry word or something or heaven forfend you flip somebody off driving on the road, right? Because they just pulled in front of you, almost killed everybody. Those are not subconscious. Those are not reflexive. Those do not just happen by themselves. Those reflexive actions are actually the result of careful cultivation of attitudes and emotions. So by repetition, over time, over and over, it gets easier and easier to just, in a second, act in a certain way when you receive a certain outside stimulus to the point where you don't even think about it anymore. And so you go, oh, you know, it's just, sub it's just who I am, right? It's just subconscious, right? Um, put another way, if I were to ask you to uh, drive 90 miles an hour down a hiking trail in the mountains, I think you would find that pretty difficult. Why? Because there's probably a lot of switchbacks. Uh, rocks, trees, everything in your way, you'd never be able to get up to enough speed. But if I asked you to go to Boise, jump on the freeway and head to Boise and hit 90, most of you wouldn't have any issue doing that. Why? Because the path has been cleared. It's been straightened and the road has been paved. So just um, a caution to all of us. Be careful what roads you're paving. Okay, because that's where you're, you'll end up heading. So the last thing I want to look at in verse 16 here is that it also kind of struck me, or I'm sorry, verse 15, apologies, um, is that the whole sin scenario in verse 15 is framed in the context of a birth. 
because uh, typically a birth is something that's very exciting and joyous and lovely, and we all are very excited about it. Now think of sin, right? Sin always disguises itself as something that is alluring or desirable or promising us happiness or goodness. And we are busy convincing ourselves that going down this path is going to lead us to something that we truly want in life. Or maybe we just tell ourselves that God's holding me back from having something that's good, right? You know, we tell ourselves all sorts of things. We trick ourselves into thinking sin is this appealing thing we must have. But really, when we grab it, when we have it, all it brings about is pain, suffering, and as this verse very clearly says, death, right? So instead of a joyous occasion, it turns out to be something pretty horrible. So, luckily, um, God, while this is kind of a bummer so far, right? It's kind of a heavy topic. Uh, God is awesome because he never just leaves us in that moment of despair and like weightiness. He always provides hope. He always provides uh, kindness, grace in those moments. So let's move on to verse 17 here. While it seems like James is kind of switching gears here, 17 and 18, I do believe, fit right in with this section, okay? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. This is more like it. Um, God always tempers bad news with good news. Pastor Dan is um, fond of giving homework, so I'm going to give you some homework. Just because I thought, oh, should I put this up on the screen? I thought, no, I'll spare you, okay? Uh, I think of the Old Testament prophets like Amos, right? And um, so much of that book is just God pronouncing judgment on Israel. So your homework, if you would like to, and I encourage you to, is to read chapter 9. It's 15 verses long. Take you about two minutes. But I love it because I was struck as I was reading through it that um, without fail, whenever God declares judgment, he also declares restoration. The first 10 verses of Amos is God judging Israel. He said, I will wipe your kingdom off the face of the planet but I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, right? I will sift the nation of Israel like grain from a sieve so that not even the smallest grain falls to the ground. So an extraordinarily serious judgment God's pronouncing on Israel in Amos. But then starting in verse 11 to 15, God talks about how he will actually restore the kingdom. He will restore his people to their land. He will restore their prosperity. You will plant your vineyards. You will drink of the wine thereof. Like, and it just really struck me that um, God always provides good news with bad news. Think of the gospel itself. The reason we're literally here 
on a Wednesday night, the gospel, right? Knowing that Christ is our Savior is not as meaningful to us if we don't understand what we need saved from or we don't understand why we need saved, right? The bad news and the good news always go together. So 17 and 18 here are the good news to temper the bad news. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So, again, as we've seen tonight, temptation involves us convincing ourselves that the sin we're committing is actually good or justified or beneficial or desirable or something, right? We'll tell ourselves anything just to get to it. Um, So we're going to quickly jump back to Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, verse 6, we're given an insight into Eve uh, at the moment before she sins, right? So it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Right? So, So what is Eve's thinking in that moment? Man, that fruit looks awesome. That looks delicious. And you know what? Who doesn't love wisdom? Wisdom is a good thing, guys. So of course I should eat this because it's going to give me wisdom. And wisdom is fantastic. And possibly because we have the conversation where the serpent is trying to deceive her. What does the serpent say? God's withholding something from you that's very good. He, he tells you not to eat of that tree because he knows that when you do, you will become like him, knowing good from evil. God is withholding something very good from you. What a selfish guy, right? So this is us when it comes to temptation, okay? But God is kind and generous, and he is willing and able to pour out every good thing that will satisfy every longing and desire we have. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Christ came that we may have life and have it abundantly, overflowing, overflowing. He is not stingy. He does not withhold from us. So why are you chasing after these baited hooks that only lead you to death? Right? This analogy not my proudest moment because it seems like such a serious topic and it seems like such a silly analogy, but here we go. Um, you guys ever been shopping when you are just starving? What typically happens, right? I think actually maybe one of the most dangerous things that a human being can do is to be ravenous hung, ravenously hungry and walk into a Costco because now they have a food court and it's dirt cheap. Food's like okay, like it's well worth a dollar fifty for a hot dog and a and a soda. But in order to do that, you gotta go through the store, you gotta go through the checkout. And so by the time you get to that food kiosk, you've already bought a 25-pound bag of jerky and a pumpkin pie the size of a car tire, and like a bag of Doritos as big as a body pillow. Like, you know, you're just like, oh man, what have I done to myself? Now um, how about the flip side of that? 
How about when going shopping when you've already had a great meal? You're not hungry at all, right? All of a sudden, it becomes infinitely easier in that moment to stick to your list, to not buy things junk you don't need, right? God is not withholding anything that is good from us. We have full access to everything that is good. I hope you believe that. Our total satisfaction is ultimately found in him. And insofar as that is true in our lives, we are empowered then to resist temptation when we encounter it. Okay. A couple of more verses just to reinforce this point. Psalms 84.11, please. For the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is so generous to us. He is, on your best day, how close to Christ would you say you came? One billionth of a percent, maybe, right? I don't know. Is that blasphemy, what I just said, like to even put myself that close? And yet, his love for us, his kindness towards us, his willingness to just bless us with every good thing does not change. When we blow it, when we think we do awesome, God is the same always. Matthew seven eleven, chapter 7, verse 11. Jesus speaking here. If you then, being evil, <laughs> uh, sorry, I just, Jesus just called, that just makes me, sorry. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? No matter how generous any person is on this planet, God is infinitely more generous. He loves us. So let's look at the second half of this verse in 17. Okay, So every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So Father of lights is a title that the Jews gave to God. And it basically... The lights, the father of lights means the sun, the moon, the stars, right? It is a title that reflects God and his power in creation of the universe, okay? God as creator. And so using that analogy here, with whom there's no variation in shadow or shadow of turning, James is just pounding us again and again with his argument. God is not just good some of the time. He is good all the time, right? He is eternally consistent in all that he does, right? The sun always shines, okay? It's dark outside, but that's not because the sun stopped shining. It's because we have turned away from the sun, right? It's on the other side of the planet. And so it is with God. God is always good. He is always generous. He is always kind. It is us that turns from him, not the other way around. And then to wrap up, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits for his creatures. So this last verse, I think, is the culmination of James's argument in this section about temptation. He says, look at the work of God in salvation, right? God does not 
waste his time tempting us. This is how God exercises his will. It's not in tempting us. It is in bringing about salvation in the lives of his people. God couldn't have tempted us to sin because he has saved us to make us like himself. And as we discussed earlier, God has no experience with sin. His nature is completely separate and apart from sin. When sin touches our lives, it brings death. When God touches our lives, it brings life. So that is why God can have no part in our temptation or in our sin. He exercises his will to do good, not evil, and or to bring forth a new creation, not to entice the old one. Brother, sister, I really hope that you believe that because it is true. And I hope that you can find some comfort from that the next time you face a situation like what we're talking about, temptation and a trial. That is all I have for tonight. Let me close in prayer, and let's spend some time just fellowshipping with one another and hanging out before we head out for the night. Father, we just are so incredibly grateful for you in our life. No matter how many times, Lord, we think on your grace, it never gets old. It is amazing every single day, Lord, as you help us along in this life, this Christian life, Lord, and we see day by day uh, how far we are from Christ in word and deed, Lord. We just are just astounded every day by your great grace on our behalf. Lord, thank you so much. We just pray for those, well, all of us, Lord, who face temptation daily. Lord, please help us to cling to you in those moments, Lord. Please help us to um, always believe truly in the core of our being that your way is best. Lord, please help us to encourage one another in those moments when we fall, extend grace, Lord. And Lord, we just um, are just so grateful for the opportunity to meet here as your people, Lord, for the purposes of just praising your name. Lord, you are so good. And we are just so blessed, Lord, by you. So thank you for your just wonderful grace. And we just ask all these things in Christ's name.